0: On this edition of the Iowa Business Report.
1: When you consider that according to the Census Bureau, 90% of privately held companies are family owned, they're a huge part of our communities and our economy.
0: Proper compensation is important for the smooth operation of any business, but it can be even more important in a family owned and operated business. If you're looking for opportunity, look no further than the state of Iowa. And we'll talk about rural hospitals, not only as a business, but in terms of broader economic impact on their communities. This is the Iowa Business Report for the third weekend of March, 2021. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, Click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. Here is Jeff Stein. Fair is not always equal when it comes to compensation in a family business. Now, while there is no single blueprint for how to handle the compensation issue in a way that won't lead to some conflict, there are some ideas about how to talk about money in a family business in a healthy way. Fair and Equal Compensation, Questions About Pay in a Family Business is the topic for the next Breakfast Series event sponsored by the Family Business Forum within Advance Iowa. It will be held virtually from 8 to 10 a.m. next Friday, March 26th. One of the panelists is Martha Sullivan, founder and president of Providence Hill Consulting. We talked about issues of compensation in a family business via Zoom on Friday, March 12th.
1: The most important starting block in the conversation around compensation in a family business, to my mind, is recognizing that there are two primary ways in which families earn compensation, if you will, or get the monetary reward from family and business ownership. One is as an owner and the other is as an employee. It's very important for the family and the members that are both active and inactive in the business to make that distinction. Because once you understand the rights and privileges and how ownership works versus how employment works, then you can unpack what makes sense to be the most fair scenario for the people involved once you break down that distinction then you can focus on compensation as it relates to salary and wages and incentive compensation and what is the framework that we're going to use to maintain an equilibrium in that business and balance balance The internal equity between positions and roles in the company, as well as be realistic about what the market has to say and what will that entail to have fair and attractive compensation in our particular business.
0: And I suppose you can use comparisons because we know what certain people are paid at certain levels of a company. But I can show you that on paper, but again, you've got the family dynamic, you've got an ownership dynamic, and that could very easily take someone who understands what it says on paper, but they have to divorce the emotion from that, don't they?
1: They do need to divorce the emotion from it, and I sound like a broken record, but that's where the governance and the transparency and the shared expectations are so valuable to understand, okay... As owners, this is how we get compensated for the risks that we take for being owners or for the benefit of having the proper last name, if you will. Mm -hmm. This is how we ensure we're doing what's best for the health of our largest asset, for the health of our business, and managing those compensation systems accordingly and not letting those emotions become such a distraction to operating the company in the most effective way.
0: As you look upon your experience, your regular work, what is it that you look at when you come into a new situation and say, this could have been avoided? You know, in other words, is there something that consistently people do wrong? So someone listening to this who has a family business they can think, okay, if this is the number one thing that everybody else is messing up, maybe we ought to take a look at it. Is there something where you say, well, this could have been prevented if if only there had if been a only little this? more. Yes, if only. Just if only. If yes. only.
1: <laughs> I like to keep things simple and return to, you know, let's get back to basics. When it comes to compensation within a family business as well as really any business. Do you have those building blocks in place? Do you have position descriptions? Do you have goals and performance expectations mapped out and shared with the person in that role? How are you going about evaluating the performance? And if you don't have position descriptions as a fundamental building block, then it is truly a free for all you and i might have the same title but i'm able to say well i did this and jeff you can say well i did that and there's going to be automatic friction as opposed to that baseline to be able to say nope this is a job these are the expectations this is what the market says that position should be compensated for and this is what our philosophy is around paying somebody for this job
0: and realistically too You might have a certain job title at one company, then you move to another company with the same job title, but it could be just a vastly different set of duties and obligations. And so you have to, again, normalize all of that in order to make sure you're communicating in the same way.
1: Absolutely. And that's the power of having access to compensation surveys and studies and somebody who is skilled at looking at what you just described in terms of same title, two different companies, really two very different job descriptions. If you are a sales manager in one organization and you've got this set of expectations, but it's a much bigger company, you have more direct reports, you're really responsible for marketing as well, that's very different from somebody at a company that's half that size with a sales team of three people. So you really do need someone skilled at looking at those apples and oranges and helping you figure out what is really being said here. It's very true.
0: We have talked previously about transitions. How do you get from one generation to another? Is the short of it... Planning and communication, again, not to just keep beating these same themes, but realistically, you can have issues with generational transition within a non-family-owned company. But again, more layers here.
1: Correct. There are more layers. And yes, it's the planning, it's the, the communication, but it's also realizing that transition in a family business in particular is much more than just a transaction. It really is a transformation for the now generation and a transformation for the next generation. It is one of the approaches that I bring to my clients is recognizing that transition is a bigger system. And there are other factors that need to be considered. It's not just getting the legal document in place to transfer the shares between mom and dad to junior. You need to take into consideration the personal, financial, and the the strength of the business. All three of those dynamics add almost an exponential layer of complexity to it. If mom and dad have more resources than God, there's a lot of flexibility in terms of what they can do with that business if they don't have adequate resources there needs to be some honest conversations about what does transition look like so mom and dad aren't in junior's basement eating kibble kind of things so there are dynamics in that regard that i think people kick that can down the road that may be more uncomfortable a conversation to have but it's just as important so everybody's on the same page
0: Martha Sullivan is founder and president of Providence Hill Consulting, online at ProvidenceHill.com. She's one of the panelists for the next Family Business Forum Breakfast Series event. Learn more at AdvanceIowa.com. Still to come, a place where opportunities abound and the statistics prove it, and the business aspect of rural hospitals. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advance Iowa's Business Ownership Transition Initiative. Free workshops on ESOPs and worker co-ops twice each month. Learn more at AdvanceIowa.com and search for Advance Iowa on LinkedIn and Facebook. U.S. News & World Report has carved out a niche for itself in the changing media landscape by conducting rankings and surveys in a number of areas. Earlier this month, U.S. News released its rankings of states in a variety of categories. One of those categories was Opportunity, and Iowa ranked number one in the country for Opportunity. And many of our neighbors have good stories to tell in this respect, too, as eight of the top ten states in the Opportunity category are in the Midwest, including Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, and Wisconsin. U.S. News says Iowa's housing affordability level is number one in the nation. We have the third lowest level of food insecurity. Iowa is fourth in the country in terms of overall affordability and 12th for economic opportunity. In fact, overall, when all eight categories and more than 70 metrics are merged, Iowa was the 12th best state in the nation. U.S. News did not release a report last year due to the pandemic. You may recall that back in the summer of 1999, more than two decades ago, Iowa released a new state economic development slogan, Iowa, Fields of Opportunities. That could be changed to Iowa, the best opportunities. Coming up, a key economic driver for rural areas in a number of respects. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Panther Biz HQ. UNI students working with small businesses to advance or create dynamic social media presence. Learn more at IASourceLink.com. Often in the business profile segment of this program, we tell you the story of a single company but we have also focused on various industries or genres and their impact on our state's economy. This week, one of those conversations about rural hospitals in Iowa. The Iowa Hospital Association has weighed in on the topic of compensation and economic impact through an editorial submitted to various media outlets. I talked about the topic with Jason Harrington, President and CEO of Lakes Regional Healthcare of Spirit Lake. He also serves as President of the Iowa Hospital Association Board of Officers and Trustees. What's the greatest challenge facing what we call rural care providers, rural hospitals these days?
2: Setting the pandemic aside, because obviously that would be affecting everyone, but to, particularly in rural. I would say it's reimbursement seems to be the the biggest concern amongst my colleagues and otherwise. And I think the Center for Healthcare Quality had done a study within the last year and and had indicated that there's probably 500 rural hospitals in the country that are at risk of closure. Now, in Iowa, more specifically in that same study, they, they identified 40. And so Iowa has roughly 118 hospitals, so it's a significant number, 30% of hospitals at risk of closure. Part of that has to do with the reimbursement structure, so that that certainly has an impact. I think lower patient volumes has an impact. The opioid crisis has had an impact. I think rural oftentimes, just because of the isolated nature of rural, we tend to see a sicker patient population than some other hospitals or healthcare centers. And so I think those, those are all factors. I think, you know, another significant factor is workforce. I think as, as we see this happen in, in a lot of other industries, as the baby boomers exit the workforce, you know, we're having more and more challenges replacing that portion of the workforce, in, particularly in certain areas, physicians, nurses, lab technologists, radiological technologists. So, you know, it's really multifaceted. But I think, you know, for purposes of the editorial, it was really talking about reimbursement and specifically federal reimbursement.
0: Now, let's unpack some of that. You often get individuals who are sicker, in essence. Why is that the case in a rural area as opposed
2: to a more urban area? Yeah, I think oftentimes, if you look at the demographics of rural, it it tends to be older. And, and, you know, I wish it were different. But as we age, you know, certainly our health starts to deteriorate and, and it puts more demands on the system. So I think that we have that. We have a larger elderly population. I think the isolation part of that that I mentioned earlier is really about, access to care. And and sometimes, you know, it's access to specialty care. That elderly population sometimes has more difficulty with transportation or traveling generally. So, you know, that certainly impacts that. I would say that it's those things primarily. It's just access to health care and preventative services.
0: Now, we're talking about reimbursements. I've talked to people on the radio for a number of years who have talked about what is literally a crisis with regard to rural hospitals, rural health care, and it always comes back to this reimbursement issue. And it's something that I think people just may not understand because for most people, as a patient, you go in, you hand over your insurance card, there may be some copay, et cetera, and you're done. What is the reimbursement issue that is adversely affecting our rural health care system in particular?
2: As you think about payment of healthcare services across the country, you know, the federal government makes up probably from most communities more than 50% of that payment for healthcare. So either in the form of Medicare or in the joint partners with the state Medicaid. So the federal government, you know, drives a significant amount of reimbursement for rural. The challenge with that, and I mentioned earlier the impact of disproportionate number of elderly in rural typically is that, that population is covered by Medicare. And I'll use my specific example, Jeff. So in the case of Lakes Regional Healthcare, because of the way that we're reimbursed by Medicare, absent this rural community hospital demonstration program, we lose 20 cents of every dollar of cost for our Medicare patients. So Medicare pays us effectively 20 cents less than what it actually costs us to provide those services to that Medicare population. So if you extrapolate that out further to Medicaid, Medicaid typically will set their rates off of Medicare, and and often those rates, for a variety of reasons, might be slightly lower. So that gap is even greater when you you add Medicaid to that mix as well.
0: Your hospital is no small operation, but you have a lot of money in terms of Medicare losses on an annual basis. That's just staggering to me. Four to five million dollars just for Lakes Regional Healthcare in a 12-month period alone.
2: Yeah, so, so as you think about that, covering 80 percent of the cost for one hospital, and, and again, that wouldn't be true for every hospital, Jeff, so it would be hospitals similarly situated to us. Sure. And so, that number becomes fairly significant when you start to think about that 40 hospitals in Iowa that are at risk, the 500 hospitals in in the country that are at risk. Certainly a a subset of that that population or a subset of those hospitals are, are similarly situated to us, which would have similar losses then in terms of Medicare and Medicaid.
0: I imagine someone listening might say, well, that's fine. I pay a lot when I go to the hospital and they can absorb this and they're doing fine and all that. But the impact of a rural health care center, a hospital, it's not just your building, right? I mean, the economic right. impact to a community of having a vibrant rural health care system, that's exponentially greater than what you alone might generate within the four corners of your building.
2: Yeah, and I, You know, I, as an industry, I think we probably could do a better job kind of telling that story because you're exactly right. So, so in the case of Lakes Regional Health Care, because I know those numbers, so in our particular case, we employ about 350 employees. The, the impact of that to the economy is about $18 million a year. We happen to be fortunate in our, in our local economy to have some large manufacturing plants and otherwise. But in many communities, I think of the community that I grew up in, the hospital was far and away, the hospital and the school you know, were the largest employers in my hometown. In the absence of that, not only did you take healthcare away, which which, which you've effectively then crushed any future opportunity for business development and otherwise, because a business isn't going to want to come to a community without a hospital or without healthcare access. But you've also removed all of those jobs. You've removed all of the economic impact of those jobs in those communities. So so the story is much greater than just oh well, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that this poor rural hospital closed. It's really a statement about the support of rural generally. And one in five people in this country have chosen or, or maybe not chosen live in rural. That's 60 million people in the United States. You know, so it's a significant, significant number.
0: You know, we've said for so many years when a town loses something, maybe it is a school building, a rural hospital. That's just a big piece of the fabric of the community that's taken away, and then how do you recover? So I suppose if you're interested in rural economic development, then I guess one of the very first things you ought to be doing is making sure that the component that we're talking about today is well taken care of, because without that, that's one of the foundational building blocks, is it not?
2: No, I, I think your point is excellent, Jeff. So, I, you know, I have this conversation with our local economic development folks often or our, our local chamber. And, and and as they look at, you know, new businesses that might be interested in coming to the Lakes area or anywhere for that matter, they want to know about availability of workforce. Certainly, they want to know about the tax structure of the community and the state and otherwise. And, and then somewhere in that top three is, you know, access to highly reliable, high quality health care. So you're right. I mean it's it's significant beyond just our mission, you know. So but it has significant economic impact on communities, particularly rural communities.
0: Jason Harrington, president and CEO of Lakes Regional Healthcare of Spirit Lake and president of the Iowa Hospital Association board of officers and trustees. We spoke via Zoom on Thursday, March 18th. The Iowa Hospital Association is a nonprofit group Made up of 119 hospitals and healthcare systems serving Iowa. More online at IHAonline.org. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to TotallyIowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. You'll also find podcasts of full interviews with many of the folks you hear on this program. They're listed as IBR Extras and IBR Business Profiles. And we're also found on all the major podcast distributors, including Alexa, iHeart, and TuneIn. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week.